Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When a human judge seeks meaning in the abuses of the wicked or in the misfortunes of the righteous, if he is as honest with himself as the preacher in Jerusalem, his pursuit of wisdom leads nowhere. As each door closes in his face and each path turns to vanity, he comes to a realization. Every possibility he considers is judged by God. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, says the preacher, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 78 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Yesterday at your father's 40th day memorial, I thought it was appropriate to look at chapter 8 in Ecclesiastes. At first I thought maybe go with the gospel, but then I'm like, no. When I'm standing on an actual grave in front of an actual tombstone, Ecclesiastes fit perfectly in gaining wisdom from contemplating death. We were not fools in the house of celebration. We were in the house of mourning. And I think we're able to gain some wisdom from spending some time there at the cemetery thinking about contemplating Ecclesiastes. So it was very powerful for me. I gave a word from chapter 8 in verses 14 and 15. We'll get to it in a moment when we work our way through there. But those were very powerful for me. And understanding in chapter 7, how do we keep in balance wisdom and foolishness righteousness and wickedness and i think chapter eight gives us an idea in how we go about doing that chapter eight is probably a good time to take a step back because there's a literary mechanism that starts to surface in this chapter that i think points to what's really going on with the preacher and his exploration of futility but i've mentioned often throughout this text areas where i think paul's teaching in romans and in galatians and elsewhere is drawing on the wisdom of the preacher. Because the way that Paul handles the question of grace, which is the Lord's generosity, and faith, which is your trust or your fear of the Lord, and at the same time works and their value and parallel futility, that has to do very much with the school of anti-idolatry in the Bible. And in thinking about the meaning of Ecclesiastes and why with this exploration of futility, he always still somehow holds on to judgment and the fear of the Lord. What I realized is in hearing Ecclesiastes, you are being canceled out by the anti-idolatry school of the prophets and of the writings because every single idea that is brought forth, every single exploration of every single why and every single question is canceled out, which means you your idols are being smashed by this text and it leaves you no oxygen whatsoever. And I like that the word that keeps getting repeated in this book of what your idols mean, what your ideas mean, they're not wicked, they're not blasphemous, 
They're pointless. Hevel, a wisp of smoke. This is what these ideas are. They're just going away. They're gods that pass away. The wickedness of your gods is that they lead you into destruction because they're vanity. Something that's vain, vanos, is something that has no weight, no substance. It's just empty. It's nothing like the wisp of smoke, like the vain breath and so forth. So I think that's important to understand that when you hear this, again, it's not a philosophical reflection. It's not an abstract intellectual exercise in which you get excited about how interesting and complex the ideas are. No, there's a word for that that I won't say on the podcast. What this is doing is showing you the exact opposite. It's judging all of your exploration and your puzzling and your figuring out and showing you that it's all an empty pursuit. So you're left with the question, what really counts? What's left? But in scripture, what really counts, what you're left with in the anti-idolatry tradition is something that can't be depicted, that can't be conceived, that can't be grasped, it's counterintuitive. It's the idol that is the absence of an idol. So here, in a way, in Ecclesiastes, it's all about the Lord's judgment and what that means and what the implications are. God has put eternity in man's heart, but he cannot grasp it. We have this ability to understand that there is this eternity beyond us, but we can't really comprehend it. We can't really conceive of what that is. And for me... This is how I'm interpreting fear of the Lord is understanding that there is one who does hold eternity in the palm of his hand. Absolutely. How can you tell whether someone who lived to 100 is of more value to God's purpose than someone who lived to 73? How can you tell when you are looking at this question from within the potter's clay? You are on the wheel you are being formed by the same hands that hold the one who lived to 100 and the one who lived to 73. You can't possibly understand which is better or why it happened or what its purpose is. You can't. So why lose time doing so? Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Wisdom does help. You know, that's one problem with this is that it's hard to understand because oftentimes you're asked to wonder, is wisdom really worth having? And here we begin by saying, no, 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 it does allow you to interpret matters. It helps you to understand matters to a deeper level, and it will allow you to have a kind of confidence in understanding what's going on around you. So then once we have the understanding that wisdom is helpful, then keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. So you want to keep the command of the king, understanding that a wise person, yes, he can understand a lot, but the king's the king. Whether the king is wise or the king is a fool, the king's the king, and you follow his word. Oftentimes, people who are Christian will say, pray for our rulers, but they tend to say that more when they like the president who's in office as opposed to when the president is someone they don't like. Then they're not emphasizing the importance of praying for the president. The thing is, is that the president is the president, the ruler is the ruler, the king is the king. The law doesn't matter. The police officer is going to follow the law is going to enforce the law, whether it's a Democrat president or whether it's a Republican president. It's like Nassim Taleb said recently, when people agree with you, they say that you're wise. When they disagree with you, they say that you're arrogant. That's pretty much the American dilemma right now. Exactly. And it doesn't work. 
It's when you disagree with someone that you have to embrace them. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. This is the meaning of the verse. It's not the separation of church and state. It's such an illiterate exegesis. I don't even know what to do with it, and I'm sick of hearing it. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning what do I care about his flipping money? What will this money buy me in the kingdom? If he tells you to mop the floor, just mop the floor, big deal. For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. You know the rules, you know the policy, you know the tradition. Just do your business and stay under the radar so that you can save a little bit of extra time each day to study Torah with your friend, because that's what counts. Paul, when he talks about Caesar and how, you know, Caesar's law is to make sure the people are behaving correctly. So why would you go against Caesar? He's just trying to keep people in line and cooperating with each other. But again, as we've said many times on this podcast and elsewhere, he's saying that when he knows full well that the church to whom he's writing, Jews in the Roman Empire, in the city of Rome, are terrified of the potential of persecution under the nose of Caesar. So it's not like Paul saying, oh, just get along with the government, it'll be fine. He's saying, look, I know there's a threat of you being wiped out, but remember that that threat is from the hand of the Lord. That is how the prophetic tradition works. Right. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Everything that we want to do, there's a proper time. Well, you know, I worked, I made my money, why do I have to go and pay taxes? My trouble is heavy upon me. Why should I have to go and pay taxes? Why should I have to not do what I want to do? Well, there's a proper time and place. The king told you when those proper times and places are. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? If you don't know what the result's going to be, how are you going to say when it's going to happen? You can't even make one hair on your head black or white. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. You can't say, I'll hold off death until such and such a day. No, you can't. You don't have authority over death. You can't restrain the wind with the wind. You can't keep the wind from blowing. This is an agricultural economy and what the wind can do to your crops, to your trees is very damaging. There's no discharge in the time of war. When the invading army comes, they're going to ask for your credentials before they decide to burn down your house. And there's no evil you can commit that will give you an advantage over these limitations. So don't fall in the trap of thinking, since I can be a little bit wicked, as we heard in the previous chapter, maybe I can be a little bit more wicked to try and avoid some of these limitations that God is placing on me, in some cases, by the hand of human authority, which opposes me. Don't think that you can stick it to the king any more than you can stick it to any of these natural phenomena. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way God has set up the cosmos. And this is a very difficult verse in light of what I read recently about the Christians in northern Iraq joining up with the Shiites in order to fight against ISIS. If the Christians start killing ISIS members, is this going to help the Christians in the long run? We don't know. We don't know what the matter is going to be, let alone when it's going to be. What's going to come of a Christian army facing off against ISIS? There's no way we can know. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, 
wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This, too, is futility. Right, so he wanted to take as a case study, okay, how about good people who are mistreated? How about evil people who are mistreating people? Let's take that for an example. So I've seen the ones who used to go in and out from the holy place, who used to make good show of their religious sentiment, and they were evil. But even them, they were forgotten, both their religiosity and their evil. They were just forgotten. So what did this evil get him? Neither good nor evil, nothing, futility, a wisp of wind. However, and this gets back to the question of the eternal or post-apocalyptic perspective in verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. The Lord will come one day. He hasn't come yet. What does it matter? Seems like it's working out for that guy. Yeah. Why not? Everybody's doing it. It's fine. Or even if we don't do it, he's going to get all of it and we're going to be left out in the cold. If we don't do it, we're going to be in trouble. My point is that the element of judgment and consequence is not lifted. He's not saying there are no consequences. He's saying you can't really understand the consequences because you're not the one who holds everything in the palm of your hand. So even in the prophets... When Israel disobeys God's law and God brings the emperor of Babylon against Jerusalem, in our mind we say, oh, you see, actions have consequences, which is correct. That's how the narrative works. In the Bible, actions have consequences, and those consequences manifest the Lord's judgment. However, what the preacher is saying is don't imagine that you can understand when or if or how those consequences are truly brought to bear. In the Book of the Twelve, several times, the Lord reminds the people, I have not forgotten. I will not forget. Because sometimes the people say in the prophets, oh, the Lord won't do anything. Oh, the Lord has forgotten. Oh, the Lord has turned his face from us. The Lord's not paying attention. No, no, no. It's not that the Lord is not paying attention. It's not that the Lord has forgotten. It's that the Lord is doing it in its time. You don't even know the what. How can you say the when? This is what I love about Ecclesiastes and why I go back to our first episode where I explained how scholarship misreads the book when they argue that the epilogue is an insertion because the epilogue then is a little reflection and excursus on judgment or a summary. When in fact, he's building towards judgment. It's like a heartbeat in this text that keeps getting stronger as you push further and further. In verse 12, the issue is pushed even more forcefully, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life. Earlier he said there's no advantage in evil. Did he mean that that means a sinner can't actually lengthen his life by evil? No. He's saying there's no advantage in evil ultimately because of the Lord's judgment. So even if he lengthens his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. Right, but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Those two go together. He's not lengthening his life because he's doing evil. This is assuming too much agency Correct. with the evil person. Correct. Oh, he's able to get out of oppression because he can pay off those who would oppress him. No, no, no. He's getting oppressed not because of his money, but because God is allowing it. It's like the dear old nuns in my grade school used to say during religion class when they would read Bible stories to us. 
you don't know. Maybe God lets a wicked person live longer because he's still holding out hope for them that they'll repent. You just don't know. The point isn't whether or not the nun's statement is correct. The point is it reflects the wisdom of this text that you, O man, do not know. The wisdom in their statement is, who knows? Who knows? It's in God's hand. There is a futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. There are righteous people who are treated unfairly, and there are wicked people who treat people badly who get away with it. This is futility. This is pointless. But this is how life is. This is as old as the hills. I love the connection with this book in Genesis 4 and the story of Cain and Abel because Abel is Hevel. It's the same word as futility because what is Abel? Abel is born and killed for no reason. We don't even know why Cain rose up and killed him in the field. It doesn't give us an answer. He was born, was killed, never had children, no progeny. Why did he die? Because Cain was wicked. Well, why did this happen? It just happened. We see it happening around us in families. We see that one person is treated unfairly. Another person keeps treating other people unfairly. We want to join with a person who's treated unfairly and coddle them. And we want to cast out the one who's treating others unfairly. This is just what happens. And it's amazing that, you know, whenever this book was written, he knew that this is what happens with human beings. But a man's wisdom, as we heard at the beginning of this section, illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. So you look upon, you have confidence, you gain confidence, you gain hope. Mm -hmm. Because you look at something that is futile, and you realize that the Lord, again, holds the totality in the palm of his hand, and you trust in him, and you fear his instruction, and your face shines. Right. You don't see what God sees, but you see things differently because you know that God sees. And this is what it means to know the interpretation of a matter, which is in verse 1 also. It's beginning to grasp the grand scheme of things, knowing that there's a grand scheme that this fits into, and saying, well, one person gets treated unfairly, another person gets away with it. This is how it goes. So let's do what we can do. And the following verse tells us precisely what we can do. So I commend pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. So we know that this happens. So what are you going to do about it? Nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. So what do you do? Live your life, break bread with your neighbor, love your neighbor, and have a nice party with them, have a nice dinner with them. If I won't keep fellowship with that person, what statement are you making? Because even the wicked person, who is a hypocrite, religious person, he's completely forgotten anyway. The only legitimate statement that you can make in life is a statement that joins itself to the statement of the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand. You are his statement. He made you. You can't make one hair on your head black or white. So then the question is, if you are his statement, his creation, his produce, why don't you just accept that? Accept his statement. You see how beautiful the metaphor is. And this is why the metaphor of scripture is irrefutable. 
because you don't have to accept scripture. You can be a non-believer who's rational and who looks at the cosmos and says, however the cosmos were ordered, this is how they were ordered. You either accept it or you reject it, but to reject it is folly. To accept it is wisdom. Scripture is manifesting that order as wisdom, as instruction, so that you can actually be relevant by joining yourself or hitching yourself to God's wagon. Exactly, by yoking yourself, submitting yourself. Because look, while human beings have eternity in their heart and cannot grasp it, the difference between that and the person who actually does hold it all in his hand is that we're going to die. Human beings are going to die. And the wisdom is knowing, look, I am limited because I'm going to die. The one who holds it all in his hand will not die. So that's the main difference between me and them. Okay, so what do I do? God gave me some days. I don't know how many. Maybe this is my last one. So it's a good day to just enjoy myself. Why am I going to hold a grudge against somebody? Resentment is like taking a poison pill and hoping the other person will die. It's only going to make you miserable. It's rooted in the fear of other human beings. This is also something that came out in our preaching yesterday, both of us, that your inability to face certain people your fear of socializing with certain people is a form of idolatry because you're giving power to something other than God's instruction, which means you're a slave, you're a tool, you're in bondage. One thing that was very powerful about my father's death for me is that the remaining shackles fell off. Something about a man losing his father sets you free. You suddenly become so aware that the grave upon which you stand is your future home. And it's like the gloves come off. It's a kind of freedom where I'll say anything to anybody. I mean, I was that way before, obviously. But I feel even more emboldened now because I have the absolute assurance of my death. And it is a great blessing. And it's a certainty that comes as the fruit of the spirit, which is the gift of God's love for his creatures. This is, the, this is making one's face shine. This is the confidence that, that death brings to us. Absolutely. Death slash wisdom brings to us. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day nor, or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun, which is what we've been saying. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. And again, by way of analogy, I'm thinking now of Matthew, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened to you. You can't seek outside of the Bible. Matthew's admonition, his instruction, his exhortation is challenging you to seek the text for knowledge and understanding. Because the one who made the heavens and the earth inscribed his wisdom in the book of life. So if you want to have any hope of gaining wisdom, that's where you seek. You can't seek outside of that context. And I think this is what is meant by wisdom and judgment ultimately when you take Ecclesiastes in context of the broader biblical movement. The more I read this book, the more it becomes clear to me that what he's talking about is hope, and, and, genuine hope. And I think it's a hope that I hear expressed a lot of times by atheists, actually. If you really contemplate how small our solar system is in the expanse of the universe and how insignificant our planet is in our solar system and how insignificant you are on this planet, 
you gain a proper perspective. In the near infinite universe that we live in, a human being is less than a grain of sand on the beach. Less than. Even the entire Star Wars universe in our literature, and the entire Star Trek universe in our literature, and the entire Battlestar Galactica universe in our literature, if you combine all of these universes and all of their vast expanses and planets and civilizations, it's still irrelevant. There's something hopeful about realizing that we don't know everything. Every grain of sand is unique, but so what? So they're all unique. Great, human beings are unique. So what? To what end? To what end? To end up on a beach, to end up under the ground, to be eaten by worms. This is what happens to your uniqueness, is that it is forgotten. This is what happens when you read the Bible all the time. Your friend says your purpose is to be eaten by worms, and you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good place to end this week. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you very much. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.